But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as um, it says, love requires forgiveness. If you've been with us for some time, we've been going through the book, uh, the whole book, and from beginning to end. We started uh, several years ago in the book of Luke. From Luke, we jumped into Acts. From Acts, we went to Romans. And from Romans, we did 1 Corinthians for a few years, and now we are in 2 Corinthians, and we're, we're trying to get through it as, as much as possible. And I, I really appreciate how God orchestrated all this. And we had Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 15, right during the resurrection celebration of Jesus Christ. And, and that whole month we were able to focus on Second Corinthians, First Corinthians 15. And, and so now we are at this point. And last week we talked about the uh, just being able to understand what God's doing within our lives in this time and during this this phase in our life. And and there was a, the message that God was giving us last week is comfort. Comfort is the, the word that is used to strengthen. It's not the comfort that has been watered down to, to grab someone and to uh, well, make them feel better, which it does. But the comfort that God gives us is a comfort to strengthen us, to help us to get through what we're going through, not necessarily to get us out of what we're in, into. And so the comfort that Paul was talking about, he even expressed it. Uh, there was times that we were just pushed to the limit to the point of almost to death. And as I mentioned last week, this letter here is totally different than any of his other epistles. There's 13 letters that he wrote, and this one is from the heart of Paul. Paul is sharing his passion, his heart for the church, and he's trying to get across to them, look, this is my pain, my heart. I empathize. I can sympathize with you. I, I feel your pain, and I, I don't want you to have that pain. But there's times that I have to talk to you as a church because you're still acting like children. And so one of the things that we've learned so far is that Paul had written four letters. The first letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth has been lost. Paul referred to that in what we call 1 Corinthians, which was the second letter. And today we're going through 2 Corinthians, and we'll find out that he had written another letter in between 1 and 2. That, again, he was very abrupt, he was hard, he was stern, and he caused a lot of pain in people's lives. But he knew that he had to do this in order to get the church in order to where he wanted it to be. And it's unfortunate that in today's culture that we don't have churches that actually do discipline. We're afraid of disciplining our members because of fear of them, well, not showing up. Who are you to tell me what to do? And so there is a process of church discipline. There really is. And we, we use it very sparingly. We try and, and just talk to people, and, and we're going to walk a little bit through that today. But most importantly, what Paul is trying to get, to get across to us is, yes, we mess up. And when we mess up, we should be called to account, especially if we call ourselves Christians. And when we mess up, we're called into account, we have to remember that there needs to be a process. It's just not outing somebody, but there should be a process to restore the person. And it has to be mutual. You and I, we have to be understanding of this process. I forgive you, you forgive me, and we join this fellowship so we can grow together. And so this is what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses and then come back and go over it. And it says like this, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who, suffer, who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you 
all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of my heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather to turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the, pre in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Father in heaven, I want to thank you once again for giving us the word as we apply it to our life. And so, Lord, we ask that you lead us today in all things as you continue to mend and continue to build and continue to grow your people through the process of forgiveness, through the process of discipline, through the process of comfort, through the process of love. Father, we know that love demands forgiveness, so help us to do so. Within our hearts, Lord, as we go through this message, if there is any ill will, bitterness, anger, resentment that we're holding against anyone, help us to learn how to forgive and the reason as to why we should. So, Father, I just pray and I thank you for giving us this time. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. All right, Terry, you're going to have to fill in for the amen, man. <laughs> we are missing our brother. He went back to his church now, huh? Okay, well, tell him we're going to miss him. Uh, brother Grandpa, we called him. Boy, he would just liven us all up. And so, Terry, it's your turn. <laughs> it's unfortunate that we live in a culture where that the views of forgiveness are not a virtue. It's something that we want to hold on to. As a matter of fact, the culture that we live in, it's retribution. Uh, forgiveness makes it look like you're weak or not able to hold your own. But if somebody wrongs you, it's not to, okay, I forgive you, it's to get back. It's vengeance is mine, is what most people say. Okay, I'll give it to God later. Or as somebody once said in the movie, you know, forgiveness is God's business. My business is to make the appointment for him. And so sometimes we operate in that vein of anger and resentment, and, and we look at it. And as a matter of fact, there are a lot of people and counselors that say, well, you know, sometimes you shouldn't forgive. And, and I think one of the processes of forgiveness, and I think we get this mixed up a lot, is that forgiveness is a must. If you're a Christian, you must forgive. That's just plain and simple, okay? That's just what God has called you to do. You will never forgive more than what God has forgiven in your life. Okay, now, but the problem with that is people say, well, you know, I, I can forgive, but I can't forget. You know, it's, it's, it's painful, and therefore, and they struggle with this. Forgiveness is a must, but trust is a different issue. Okay, forgiveness is a must, but trust is a different issue. Jesus forgave the people around him, but he didn't trust them. They wanted to make him king, and he slipped through them because he didn't trust them. He would avoid certain areas because, well, they wanted him dead, and he didn't trust them. Not until the time that it was to be done did Jesus say, okay, I'm going to trust that you're going to do everything that's according to God's will. And that's when he offered himself at the temple. And he gave himself, and he laid his life down as a sacrifice, as a pure uh, lamb of God to, to pay for the sins, to atone for the sins of the world. And so forgiveness is a must, but trust is a different issue. If you, you forgive someone, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to let people back in. Now that has to be rebuilt. And as Paul is talking to us through this 
portion of the scripture, he's telling us, okay, the brother's gone through enough. You can see that he's remorseful. He's gone through some changes. There's some things in his life that he's already gotten rid of, and you need to bring him back because otherwise he is going to drown in his sorrow. He's going to be swallowed up by his sorrow. He's going to be overwhelmed by his sorrow. And Paul says, bring the brother back in. That's enough. He's telling the church. And so, so forgiveness we should be doing. Forgiveness is something that we need to do. And, and Paul continues to walk us through as to why it is we should. But before I do that, let me ask, uh, answer a question is that I get from a lot of people. Why should I forgive? Well, first of all, and this is not in your outlines. If you want to take notes, I, I appreciate you would, or go back and, and get the message. But why should I forgive? Well, first of all, because forgiveness makes me more like God. Every time you forgive, you forgive just like God has forgiven you. Nehemiah 9, verse 17 says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake your people or them. In Psalms 99, verse 9, it says, Our Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. And to whom the, the, the belong compassion and forgiveness, Forgiveness, Daniel says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And every time that we rebel, God forgives. And so every time that I forgive, I am more like God. As a matter of fact, Micah says in 718, who is like God? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and forgiving one another. God in Christ forgave you, Paul says, so therefore you need to be kind, tender-hearted. And forgiving one another. And over and over again, we see that every time that we forgive, we are acting more like God. God forgave us a huge debt. Why can't I forgive other people? Another reason why we should forgive other people is because, well, first of all, forgiveness keeps me from murder. Okay? How many times have you thought, you know, I'm going to kill that guy? And I know probably you have not actually, well, I hope you haven't. I don't know. But I'm praying that you have not acted it out. You know, but but still the anger in your veins and and the pain in your mind and it just you want to lash out and you want to almost hurt the other person. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons why people do the things they do as far as hurting somebody is because of their anger, their non-forgiveness. And they rather cause infliction and pain on other people. Did you know that the first act of rebellion of sin uh, after Adam and Eve was murder? During worship, it had to do about worship. Adam, uh, excuse me, Abel brought one type of worship. Cain brought another. This insurrection rose up, and God says, you better stop it because what's going to happen, it's going to get a grab of you, a hold of you, and it did. And Cain killed his brother. And from that point forward, God has always been saying, forgive. It, it causes murder, keeps you from murder. But I want to take this a step further as Jesus did. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 21, and you know the verse that I'm going to. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus was very stern about holding this animosity and this anger because that's what non-forgiveness does. When we don't forgive those that have wronged us, we, we, we hold on to it, and, and we hold on to it with the bitter clinging, clinging as our fists clenched onto this, this non-forgiveness for what they have done to us, and we say to ourselves, you know, I would rather die than forgive that person. 
And did you know that that's exactly what's going to happen? All the ailments that bitterness and rage and anger causes in your life, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual ailments that happen in a person's life, people that, that go to bed every night just angry, they, some, some can't even go to sleep, or some go to sleep and don't, don't want to wake up. There's depression, insomnia, there's all kinds of internal intestinal problems that happen, high blood pressure, sugar diabetes, I mean, you name it. A lot of the ailments people go through can be traced back to this bitterness, this anger, this non-forgiveness. I could never forgive that person. I could never forgive my uncle for what he did to me. I could never forgive my dad. I could never forgive, and that is eating you up more than it is the other person. And that anger, that resentment, that bitterness in your vein that you lash out, not only to the person that probably by now is long gone or has forgotten what he has done, you're lashing out to other people, and it causes and it keeps you in that point of murder. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 3, John said this in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And you may be thinking, well, I've never murdered somebody, but have you ever not forgiven somebody and held that anger in your vein and, and hated that person for what they did? Well, the Word of God is telling us that, yeah, you're a murderer, and you're not going to get into heaven with that kind of an attitude, with that kind of a sin. Forgiveness, another reason we should forgive is it keeps me from offending God. It keeps me from offending God. Another reason is forgiveness shows I have been forgiven myself. In the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18, and, uh, and he tells about the, the parable of the unjust steward that, that had sinned, and, and, and Jesus just finishes telling Peter, you know, you should forgive your brother. Well, how many times should I forgive my brother, Jesus? And, and Jesus says, well, Peter asks, seven times? So should I forgive him seven times? And the reason I think he used seven times is because in the Jewish law, you were okay and considered okay and, and required to forgive a person at least three times. Okay, you got to forgive a person at least three times. And Peter says, well, I'm going to double that. I'm going to double that, make it six times, and I'm going to throw an extra one in there just to be better than everybody else. And Peter, of course, was put in his place, and Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you seven times. As a matter of fact, seven times seven, or 70 times seven. And what Jesus was saying is that perfect number, Peter, that you pulled out, Peter, that number seven, I want you to do it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Now, God didn't ask you to pull out a pen and a piece of paper and write it down and try to figure out, okay, I got to do it this many times. What Jesus is saying, you keep doing it until it's gone. You keep forgiving until it's no longer there. And, and Jesus told this parable right after. He says, you know, there's this guy that owed a lot of money, and the king asked him, you know, you got to come and pay up. And he says, I can't. I don't have it. Please. And, and he's getting ready to throw him into prison with his family and everybody else. And, and, and the king says, you know what? Okay. You know, I, it, you really don't have it? No, I don't. And he forgives the debt. You're done. You know the story. The man goes out into the street and sees somebody that owes him. This guy owed a million bucks. This guy owes him a hundred bucks. And he beats him and takes him and throws him into prison. And the servant, his own servant, says to, goes back to the master and says, you know, uh, the guy that you just forgave that million bucks? Well, he just had somebody thrown in prison because he owed him a hundred bucks. And so the, the, the king comes out and calls him back up. Didn't I just forgive you? Shouldn't you have shown the same mercy? and forgiveness that I gave you? You see, I said a little while ago, you'll never have to forgive anybody more than God has forgiven you. Your sin, 
is so vile. Your sin is so ugly. Your sin is totally against God. And God is a righteous God. He is a just God, and he demands holiness. And when I sinned, the moment that I knew I sinned, whether it was just a lie or if it was actual murder, you have broken that fellowship from God, and God demands propitiation. I want someone to pay my just due. Somebody has to pay. And thank God for his grace and his mercy that he provided a lamb for Adam and Eve. He provided a lamb to cover their sin. And my sin is cast me away from God for all eternity. But by his grace, he saw that I couldn't save myself. He saw that I was spiritually dead. And he saw that I had a, he had to go down and grab me from the bottom of the pit and bring me back out and give me life. And so I owe him. Nobody could ever do that kind of a miracle, first of all, in my life. But nobody could ever have that kind of an offense to where they can cast me back in there again. So whatever it is that anybody does toward me, I should forgive. I should. Because it's not them I'm hurting, it's me. We need to forgive. It makes us more like God. It, it helps us to show that we have been forgiven ourselves. Forgiveness mends my fellowship with other believers. Forgiveness helps me to avoid divine discipline. Forgiveness is the channel that God uses to forgive me. He said in, in Matthew 6, forgive, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now he's talking about trespasses, what people do to us. He's not talking about the sin that you've, if you're a redeemed believer and God has already forgiven that sin and you're on your way to heaven. He's not talking about that sin, that trespass. That's not a trespass. That's an actual condemnation sin. But the trespass that we do to each other. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that there's times that things are happening to you that happen to me. Things that happen to me sometimes are due and almost in line with the things that I'm not willing to forgive other people for. The anger sometimes that I have, and people get angry at me. The impatience that I have with people, people get impatient with me. And so I'm realizing, and I pray that you do as well, that a lot of the stress and the anguish that you go through in life is because you haven't learned how to forgive that other person. God wants to forgive you. But he says, you know, if you're not going to forgive the trespasses that other people have against you, things that people have done against you. We're not talking about, you know, the, the sin that's going to, that, that has cast people to hell, that brokenness that we have from God. But I'm talking about the trespass of everyday life. You know, folks, if we would just, if we would just get that message, if that message can just get into the hearts of people right now, can you imagine what a different world we would be living in right now? Could you imagine how that, that would just make an impact? But when you start to talk to people about this, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't resonate with hardened hearts. Hardened hearts can't accept this. Hardened hearts can't accept that. And so God says, if you forgive others, you know what? I'll forgive their, your trespass as well. But the hardness of people's heart. I, I need to forgive other people to prepare me for worship. I need to forgive others to put God in proper perspective. He's the one that's going to take vengeance, not me. I'm not the one to take vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. And if I don't forgive, you know what that does? It makes me bigger than God. No, God, I'll take care of it. I'll handle this. You know, and God says, but, but I forgave you. That's okay. I can't forgive him. And God is saying something to the effect of, so what you're trying to tell me is that you're bigger than God? 
If you cannot forgive, and I can, that must make you bigger than God. Maybe God is saying, I should bow down to you if you're really that great. You see how incongruent that is? You see how the division that it causes within a person's life, within a person's family, within a person's church? Because of the sin of unforgiveness. You know that every time that you forgive, I'm just going to stop with this one. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons as to why we should stop forgiving. I mean, forgive. It's because every time that I forgive someone, it builds my spiritual maturity. It helps me to grow. All of a sudden, I realize, man, that was just petty. Has that ever happened to you? You realize, you know, it's, man, that was just, that was just dumb. What that? Yeah, that was kind of stupid, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. And all these years, yeah, I didn't know, you know. And all of a sudden, everybody's hugging and shaking hands and having a good time. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God has given everyone the same common grace, the same common blessing, the same common. He has this for everyone. And there's those that God gives his special grace to, which we'll talk about later. And so in this portion of scripture, we need to learn how to love one another. And I'm just going to go back to verse, uh, verses 23 in chapter 1, because it kind of ties into chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul, where Paul says uh, in verse 23 of chapter 1, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I re- refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in truth. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause your pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I come or when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Love needs to be at the center of all that we do. When you genuinely love somebody, you can forgive. And it's unfortunate that those that we can't forgive, the Bible says basically you don't love. Paul says, I wanted to come. I wanted to share with you guys. But before I came out, I wanted to let you know how I felt. I wanted to give you a message. I wanted to call. I should have texted you. I sent you an email. This is how I feel. This is what's happened. We don't really know what took place. There's a lot of inference that maybe this is the guy that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that sinned against the church by going and uh, sleeping with his father's mother. It is believed that maybe one of the visits that Paul made, somebody stood up and, and at this in this letter, Paul is defending his apostleship, and they're calling him a false apostle. They're calling him a false prophet, a false teacher, and, and uh, so he, he shamed somebody. He put him in their place. He says, you know, this is what the Word of God says. This is who I am, and everybody just shamed him as well, and, and they cast him out, and he, he says, but I want to come back into the church, and they said, no, not until you repent, and so the, 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 the strong point of that one is that as he talks about this forgiveness or this reprimand, it falls in line to what Paul is saying. 
And, and if you read the scriptures, every time that you read a letter from Paul and how he responds as so far as the, the man that sinned, you have to understand that somebody asked him, what do we do about the man that sinned? And, and now about the things that you wrote about. And so he'll always start off that way. And also concerning. And, and that means that somebody has asked him a question about those points. And so at this point, there was that, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, the Paul party. There was the, those that followed uh, Peter, Cephas, there were those that followed Paulus, those that followed Paul, those that followed uh, Jesus Christ, and they had all these divisions within the church. So those that were behind the super apostle Paul really didn't like this guy because he went up against their super apostle Paul. And so this Paul party was already causing all this pain. And Paul says, you know, what we have to do is you need to, you need to love him. You need to love him and bring him back in because he says in verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, he says. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And this is back in 1 Corinthians 4. He's talking about how, you know, I you want to judge me? Go ahead. You know, I mean, and but, but you got to be careful in how you do this, because every time that you point a finger, there's three of them pointing back. And so Paul is talking about this sorrow that he's caused, this, this severity. He's talking about how it's come upon the, the, the person that was sinning. And, and so we have to remember that there's a lot of bad that happens against us, a lot of things that people do against us. And one of the worst case scenarios, I guess you could say in Scripture, was the man named Joseph. Don't know if you remember Israel, Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. Uh, one of them was named Joseph. They called him the daydreamer. He would uh, tell his brothers, you know, I saw these, these stars. They were all bowing to me. You know, I saw these, these sheaves of corn, and they were all bowing to me. When they says, what, you know, what are you? Get out of here, you dreamer. And he was a tattletale. He can always tell his dad what was going on. Oh, my brothers, I saw them over. They should have been there. Well, good. I'm glad you told me. They would get reprimanded. So the, the brothers are out tending the sheep, and Jacob calls them and says, go and see what your brothers are doing. And then one of them says, oh, here comes that dreamer. And so they devised a plan to, to kill him. They put him in a pit. And the oldest says, yeah, let's not kill him. Instead, what they did is they got his cloak, they rubbed it with animal's blood, and they gave it to his father. Look, an animal devoured him. And he was sold into slavery. He was sold into slavery and taken into Egypt. In Egypt, a man named Potiphar says, I'll take this guy to be my slave. And Joseph, full of wisdom, God's wisdom, was able to manage the whole household. And he became a really popular and powerful man within the magistrate. The, the, the person that he was working for was kind of like the sheriff of the community. Potiphar's wife really liked him because he was a handsome man and she tried to seduce him and he ran, left his coat and she got embarrassed and she called the guards and says, this man tried to rape me. Look, I still got his coat. He was thrown in prison. In prison, he's thinking, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. He interprets a dream for a cupbearer and a wine bearer, uh, a bread maker, and he tells the bread maker, you're going to die. Uh, and once You're going to get released, and you, but you're going to die. And the cupbearer, you're going you're to get released as well, but you'll live. And so the king has a big party and says, I need more bread makers and cupbearers. And so they called the two, the best ones in prison. They go and they serve the king. And, and the, somehow the bread maker offended the king. He's dead. And the king has this dream. And he says, I, I, nobody can interpret this dream. And then the cupbearer says, you know, I remember a guy in prison. Long story short, Joseph gets out, interprets the dream, becomes the most powerful person next to Pharaoh in Egypt, in all of Egypt, in Israel which is a long ways away. In Israel, the, the, the people are going through a famine. God has caused a famine, and he's doing this. 
this pestilence, this riot, this famine, whatever it is, God uses national disasters to accomplish his will. Get this, folks. Every time something happens, and it's not just an act of God, but it is an act of God. God is up to something, doing something. It's not about you. It's not about the community. It's not about, I don't know, San Francisco, whatever happens. It's not about Las Vegas. God is doing something. And a huge famine happens in Israel, and everybody is forced to go to Egypt, where Joseph is prepared all, all his, for the last 14 years. He's prepared, seven years actually, and he's prepared for the next seven. And, he's, and everybody's coming to him to buy grain. His brothers show up, and they look at this man. Well, of course, he looks like Pharaoh. He's got mascara on, a nice little ponytail, you know, the way the Egyptians, and he walks like an Egyptian. And so they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. Had them stay, had them incarcerated. They thought, oh my God, it's coming back to us. Joseph couldn't contain himself any longer. And Joseph says, yeah, I'm the guy that you guys sold into slavery. And they go, oh man, this guy is Pharaoh's right hand man. We're dead. And then he says to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you see, you meant to harm me, but God meant it for good. You meant to cause me pain. Now, I don't exactly know how all of that fits in the time that we're in right now, but there is a group of people out there that want to cause you pain. And somehow, somewhere, within what the Word of God says, what the Spirit is telling you right now, you need to learn how to forgive that. But you know what? You will never, ever be ready to confront that type of aggression and aggressive action against you if you can't even forgive your brother. If you can't even forgive your spouse. If you can't even forgive your company, the people that fired you, or the people that hold. If we can't even do that, beloved, what's going to happen when it really happens? And I think that probably the grossest negligence of injustice was probably done to uh, living uh, in the Bible was, was done to Joseph. But on top of that, you got to remember, well, Jesus himself. Jesus himself says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You see, what what forgiveness does, number one, it defeats pride. It defeats pride. Pride is the one thing that keeps me from forgiving. Pride is the thing that I I, I can't forgive. You know, it doesn't allow me to forgive. Because pride is, you know, you hurt me. You made me feel stupid. Or you've done something wrong to me. And therefore, I could never forgive you. Paul says in verses, uh, in, in those verses, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in measure, some measure, not to put it severely, he's caused it all to you. And for you not willing to forgive, it's kind of like saying, eh, it's okay. You know, I mean, I don't have to forgive. Because what's happening here is I'm bigger than God. You know, and, and I, they, 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 he offended you, Paul. I'm standing up for you. He offended the church. He offended the teaching. Paul says, no, put your pride aside. I'm putting my pride aside. I've already said that what I had to say. I've already talked to, to him and to you guys. Now put your pride aside. Number two, I need to forgive to display mercy and restore joy. Restore joy. I need to forgive to display mercy and restore joy. Verses six and seven. For such a man, or for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough 
So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This type of punishment that they're talking about is only used here in the New Testament. This one word, epitomia. Epitomia means to put the person out, put the person away. Not to bring him in, but to cut him off by the majority. And it it suggests this excommunication type of a thing that's happening to this brother because of the thing that he did. And Paul says, bring him back in. Bring him in. You know, because what's happening here is it's hurting him more than anything else. It's hurting him. You know, you've already done what's had to be done. He's already asked for forgiveness. He's trying to restore that relationship. He's gotten the help that he needs. Now what we need to do is just bring them back in. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that, we, that you have received from us. Well, Paul, didn't you just tell the people in Thessalonica to stay away from those kind of people? As a matter of fact, later on in verses 14 and 15 to the Thessalonians, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note that that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. He says, I want you to keep him away, but, but you know, don't, he's not an enemy. You got to bring him back eventually. If you, got, if you warn him, he'll come back. He'll do what needs to be done. The problem is, is that in today's culture, What we do, if you get mad at me or if I get mad at you, and I say, you know what, I'm leaving this church, I'm going somewhere else, I'm going to go to another church, and guess what? Or maybe you'll go to another church, and this is exactly what's happened in this church. And we'll take it, you know, to social media. We'll take it to social media because Pastor Sal said so-and-so, and and this other brother did so-and-so, and and we've had people uh, actually not, you know, be invited to church. And somebody was telling me, says, yeah, I invited this person to church not too far from the street. Oh, yeah, who's the pastor? The pastor's sounding, oh, no, no, (laughs) I won't go there. Really? I don't know. There are people that just don't like you, don't like this church, don't like me. And that's, well, that's what I keep hearing. I don't know. And and I guess I can tickle people's ears and make people feel good. And, you know, they'll come back, (laughs) you know, but then I won't be. Going according to God's word. I'd rather listen to God than to man. And Paul is saying, and what people do is, you know, you put this man out. And what they do automatically, instead of trying to come back, they they go onto social media and they got Twitter, they got Facebook, they got everything else to blast either that person, that organization, their job, that culture, that race. And all you need is one or two people. Instead of seeking forgiveness. Let's work this thing out. And it has gotten so far out of hand, folks. It has gotten so far out of hand. And we're at a point now where, yeah, like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, because the love of many will grow cold, lawlessness will continue to abide. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will need to be preached to all nations and then the end will come. This lawlessness is deep-seated in the heart and in the pit of Satan, who does not want to unite, but what he wants to do is divide. Divide within the church. Divide within churches. Divide within communities. Divide within families. He doesn't want forgiveness. 
This is why forgiveness is looked at as something very weak and sissified. Very, you know, it's not what we do. Not as men, we don't. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has complained or complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a must. You must forgive. Trust is a different issue. I forgive you, but you know what? You're your actions, as, as sorrowful as you might say that you are, your actions don't represent your, your words. And you have hurt this family. You have hurt, you know, and we got to keep this fellowship taken apart. And I forgive you. And I'm going to keep praying for you. And I want you to ask for, for this forgiveness. And I want to forgive you. But you need to understand what it is that you're trying to bring back. Because a lot of toxic relationships are built on the, or the desire or the ability to be able to manipulate the other person into believing that everything is okay. When deep back in the back of your mind, most people think, you know, I, I got to forgive this person. I know it's not okay, but I got to forgive them, so I got to let them in. No, you don't. You can forgive them from the curb, okay? And you can love them from the curb. And, and you know, but this is so lonely and it's so difficult. I want to tell you something, beloved. Forgiveness is a must. Trust is a different issue. Paul says that we need to comfort this one before he becomes overwhelmed. The, the word karapino in, in Greek, karapino is, is this overwhelmed word is used as being swallowed up, uh, as in Hebrews chapter 11, when, when the, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about how Israel went through the Dead Sea, but the sea came and swallowed them up or, or drowned them. Or as Peter says, the, the, the enemy is a roaring lion walking around looking like a, a, a lion, looking for somebody to swallow up. Karapino is the devour. And, and it's, it's used in various different ways. And God says, you know, this man is going to get so overwhelmed, swallow up, devoured, and it literally just lose all hope. Bring the brother in. Don't keep him out. Number three, I need to forgive to demonstrate God's, excuse me, I need, well, that's not right. Okay, number three, I should forgive to demonstrate love and obedience. We already talked about joy a little bit. Love and obedience. You can scratch out the joy. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 2 and 8. John, as a matter of fact, John says, uh, Jesus says to John, and John writes it down in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is important. It's deep. It needs to be reaffirmed. It needs to be established. And it needs to be continued. It needs to grow. Love, the word agape, is not a word of the kind of love that we have today. We spent considerable amount of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talking about love. Love is not this ooey-gooey, mushy feeling that a lot of people have for each other. Their love is unconditional love. Love is the type of love that I put myself aside for your best interests. That's the type of love that we have. I am inconvenienced, but for good. It's kind of like that inconvenience that some of you moms have, have uh, 
gone through, or all your moms, I'm sure, uh, those of you that have raised children at the at the very first couple of months, the baby cries, you're inconvenienced because you're sleeping, but you get up with joy and, and wanting to and desire to raise this child and feed this child and change this child and comfort this child. That's the kind of agape that God has for us. And, you know, and some ex- and to some extent, it's like an inconvenience, but for God, he says, I, I'll do it. As long as you keep coming to me, I'll do it. And I will forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all, our unri- all of our unrighteousness if we confess our sins. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And how many times do we sin? How many times do we actually come up to him? And, and so there's obedience that needs to be paid to this and given to this. And, and we, we do this because this is what he's, he's done for us. He, Paul says, for this, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. He says, I, I'm writing to you and I wrote to you this letter because I, I really want to know. Are you really going to do this? Are you really going to obey? Are you going to follow through? You're going to follow through with what it is that I've asked you to do. And there are a lot of times that we have to follow through. A lot of times that we should follow through. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus commanded, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's just what we have to do. By disciplining the sinning member, the church had obeyed the first part of that admonition. We, we, we disciplined him. Okay, we, we cast him out. All right, okay, phase two. There needs to be a process. It's just not, hey, just dog on the poor guy. He messed up, he agrees, and he's, he understands it. Now it's just a matter of bringing him back. We need to fully forgive him. And God tests us all the time. He tests to see if we're listening. He tests to see if we're going to obey. He sends certain things that happen within us to see if that's what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 13, he says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And he sends prophets. He sends dreamers. He sends people that the more they talk, you can almost see that they get further and further from God's word. It's like we had an individual that we we were we were talking about uh, certain things, and you know, and, and uh, you know, if I if I told you the specifics of it, you would know who it is. But but just take any kind of issue that we had, especially on on the word of God and the things that we should be doing, and on angels and and death and losing salvation or gaining salvation, and how you work for it. And the response was always, but you know, I think and I believe, you know, that God doesn't just choose whoever He wants. Everybody is chosen. You know, and then, well, that means that Osama bin Laden was chosen. That means that uh, Hitler was chosen. Well, everybody, you know, and, and it, you carry it out to the furthest extreme. And by the time you know it, the more that that person speaks, the further away he gets from God's word. And so there are a lot of things that sound good. And this is what God is saying here. I sent you a prophet, yeah. And he says, thus says the Lord. But a lot of the things that are happening, thus aren't happening. So, beloved, you got to see what the word of God says. As a matter of fact, in first chapter. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 5, he's telling us about how to test the spirits. You need to test the spirits every single time. Test it, and how do you test it? By the Word of God. This is what we have. And people test it by what they feel, what they think, what they heard, what such and such pastor said, or what such and such book said. But what does the Word of God say? 
And some people call me very narrow-minded. Okay, I'm only going by what the Word of God says. And the Word of God has nothing to say about what you're talking about. It's not in there. I'm sorry. Or maybe I'm not. Later, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm just going to touch on this because we're going to get into it later on. He says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that you that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our, also our boasting before Titus has proved it. Paul says, you know, we talked very highly about you guys. Titus came and he saw and he recognized it. Your obedience has been confirmed. The last thing I want to share with you is we need to ask for forgiveness and we need to forgive also to build a defense against the enemy. To build a defense against the enemy. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been forgiven for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan wants more than anything else to keep the heart of unforgiveness within the church, within the family, within our culture. Everything that is going on, for those that are true believers, genuine, uh, regenerated believers, they recognize this as a sign of the end of the times. We recognize this as something that is happening behind the scenes. We recognize it as something evil. A friend of mine wrote a post here just recently on Facebook, and he says, you know, I want you guys to realize this is not a political issue. This is not a right or a left. You know, because on a bird, both wings are needed. And, and there's no room. There's no room for the kingdom of God within that issue. You might try to force it in there somehow, and you can. You can make a good argument for this side is worse than that side, and so therefore this is the best of two evils. They're still evil. The system that we live in today is evil. The system that we need to move forward is the kingdom of God. And it's not a system. It is a kingdom. And the enemy has played us in so many different ways to the point of where we are now. And it's not about politics. It's not about race. It's not about cultures. It's, not, it's, it's about sin. You know, and I might just get in trouble for saying that. And just like some people have gotten in trouble for, for, for not identifying or acknowledging it. I'm acknowledging the fact that it is sin in all, all places of our culture. And Satan is using it. The word scheme uh, or schemaza, it's, it's that word that we use to calculate and to project and to try to figure out from way behind the scenes. Satan has been doing this for centuries, folks. And he knew exactly where all of this was going to play out. And he really believes that he's going to win. Especially with the Christians that are doing most of his work. Those that are involved in this political movement and in whatever side you're on. You have religious leaders on both sides that are calling out to God and calling out this injustice and calling out everybody to repent and calling everybody else to, to, to forgive and, and to all these things, this retribution that we have to be involved in. It's all part of Satan's scheme. 
plain and simple. And Paul says, you know, we, we have to build this defense, this fellowship. We have to get into the Word of God and build this fellowship and work through the Word of God and work in the Word of God and place it in our lives to build and establish our church. That's the defense that we have to do. And that's where we have to go. And Paul says, I've forgiven him. And I'm glad that you guys have forgiven him. Now build him back up. Bring him back in. Let's work this out. We need to not be ignorant of Satan's schemes, of his plays, of his all the things that he does. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And he says this, well, you have verse 11 there, but I'm going to read 10 through 12. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, not just part of it, you know, not just the gospel that will cover your feet, not just the helmet to cover your head, not just the breastplate or the belt of truth. A lot of people just love to put on the belt of truth and go out there and wielding the sword with just the belt of truth, and that's all they need. But you know what else we need? We need a breastplate of righteousness. We need the gospel on our feet. There are a lot of people proclaiming on media, social media, about what God wants done and how God hates this and how God hates that. You know, last time I remember, there is no piece of armor that God hates something. It is the gospel of peace. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we should be proclaiming, and that's it. There are all kinds of social issues that people get involved in, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have been commanded to proclaim. Not the governor got it in for the church. I already know that. It's written in the book. I read it. It's supposed to happen. But they're going against Christians. Well, guess what? That's in the book too. They're going to take away your liberties. Duh, I know. <laughs> it's in the book. I keep reading it and reading it. My responsibility is not to fight against that. My responsibility is to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a lost sinner. You are going to hell if you do not recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross. If you can't recognize that, then there is no hope for you. For those that have recognized that, the grace of God has been given to you. Now it's just a matter of living that out. I guess we can go off in different tangents, but we need to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Is there a present darkness now, folks? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beloved, that's where we need to be. That's where we have to, we have to suit up and boot up and be ready for it. And, and, and it all, you know, and it's just as simple as this. It, it all starts with forgiveness. And, and many people aren't even looking at that. They refuse to look at that. They don't even want to start with forgiveness. Oh, we've done that already. We've tried that in the past. It doesn't work. What did Jesus say? Okay, well, just do it three times. Oh, no, do it seven times. No, you keep doing it and doing it and doing it. But the heart of many is growing cold. 1 John 5, 18, I'll conclude with this. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And unforgiveness, folks, is a sin. When I say sin or sinning, people say, well, you know, I'm not a drunkard or I'm not a junkie. I'm not, you know, I don't commit adultery. You know, and I read my Bible. I'm a pretty good person. Okay, sin is missing the mark. Well, what's the mark? I think I hit the mark. I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person, really. Well, Jesus said there's nobody good. As a matter of fact, Paul even reiterated that. Paul says, you know, there's no one good. No one righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. No one. 
Matter of fact, the, the Old Testament writer in Psalms, he said the same thing. Same thing. No one is good. No one is righteous. They're all walking around with open pit graves in their mouth. None of them seek after God. So how do I keep sinning? What's the mark? What's, how do I miss the mark? Where, where do I get this gauge? Well, you have to gauge yourself according to Jesus Christ. That's your mark. You have to do that every single day, moment, period of your life. When the, Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And all your strength, he says in Luke. With everything that you got. You love him every single time of your life. And guess what, folks? I miss that mark all the time. I miss that mark every single time. Not because I'm sinning or, well, I am sinning. Not because I'm doing all those bad things. Sometimes it's because, you know, I'm thinking of my wife. And I'd hate to think that, you know, thinking of my wife is a sin. <laughs> you know, really. But my wife understands. I'd hate to think that I'm thinking about my grandkids as a sin. But anytime my mind gets off of God, I miss the mark. And so you're asking, so how is it that I'm supposed to make it to heaven? If that's the mark that I'm supposed to hit. Well, guess what? I'm glad you asked. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. God gives you the faith. First, he has to wake you up. You know, there was a time that I used to say this. You are drowning. You're drowning in a sea of sin. You're, you're, you're down for the count. You're, you've gone down once. You've gone down twice. And the waves are just coming over you and you see nothing, no one in sight. And you know that this is your last gasp of air. And as you're going down for the last time, a life preserver is just tossed your way. And you know that that has to be from God, that, that there is your salvation. And I used to preach that all you have to do now is just reach out there with your fingertips and just grab the edge of that rope and, and bring it in. And you're saved. You know, the, the, the problem with that is that in Ephesians chapter 2 says, well, that's not true. Ephesians chapter 2 says, no, you've gone down once, you've gone down twice. As a matter of fact, you went down the third time. And you're down at the bottom of the ocean with no life in you. And Paul says that you are dead. You are dead, dead, dead in your trespasses. You are drowned, laying at the bottom of the ocean with no chance of anything else happening except for Jesus Christ, the awesome lifesaver, comes in and dives to the bottom of the ocean picks you up, brings you back, and breathes the breath of God into your nostrils. That is the term of salvation. You didn't do anything. There's nothing that you personally can do. Because even that life preserver, and you know there's nothing else, you, you, still have to, you still have to kind of reach out there and grab it by your own strength, by what you do. Because he goes on to say, for you are saved through grace, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Not by works, not by anything that you do, but you are saved only by God's grace. He has reached out, grabbed you, given you life, and now you are his. It's not a popular teaching, but that's what the Bible says. And, and, and it's not my responsibility to try to help you or force you and say, okay, God, I guess I'll do it today. I'll come forward. You know, I kind of messed up last night anyways, so I better do something. That's not genuine repentance, folks. That's not genuine 
salvation. That's not regeneration. Regeneration is to regenerate what's already been generated. You've already been made, but you're dead spiritually. You're dead and you have to respond. God just grabs you and takes you and and, and blows the, 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 the breath of life in you and you respond to what he has given you. And now, because God did that to me, I owe him my life. And I'm gathering as many people with me to go in that same direction to grow. You say you don't have to come to church, you can sit at home. Yeah, you might be able to, but you need this fellowship. Church is essential. We need to seek his face in this place together so we can grow together. Let me ask you to stand. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Satan's schemes are out there, and it's becoming more and more obvious. And the more and more that becomes obvious, the more and more people say, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. We knew that was going to happen. I do believe that we have an opportunity within our church, wherever you may be listening from, to make that change in our community, at least in your life. And it all starts with forgiveness. The one thing many of you don't want to let up, give up, is forgiveness. Father in heaven, I I thank you once again for the word that you give us today. Paul was so dead set on forgiving this brother that the people just wanted to keep out. And he encouraged them to build him up before he gets swallowed up, before he gets overwhelmed and drowned in this remorsefulness. My bitterness toward those around me that I have hurt or have hurt me keeps me from that fellowship. And we need to build a strong defense here, Lord. We need to build a strong defense. So I pray, God, that you continue to lead us in all things and keep us safe and uh, help us to to be able to stand at the time of persecution within our life. Persecution will come, and each one of us will experience it in different ways. So help us to learn how to do so even now in the smallest things. So, Father, thank you once again for your word. Lead us as we continue at this time, as we share this communion together, to be able to build that fellowship, to remember the price that was paid for our sin, how we've been redeemed, and how we have been brought to a place that is righteous and justified in you. So, Father, continue to be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen.